0: So tell us about um, Jackson. Um, he was—he was. I think you had told me that he was basically a healthy kid.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And then, yeah. um, so did anything happen leading up to that night in September that was made? It was kind of warning signs of trouble. No, not okay. really.
1: Um, he was a little under the weather. Um, probably any parent of a toddler can can relate to this, but you know just they 're a little lethargic, a little slow, maybe not super hungry. he felt warm to the touch. Took his temperature about four times. The highest they ever got was 99.1. Gave him a little bit of ibuprofen before bed. I mean, it was pretty standard, just feeling under the weather, probably coming on with a daycare cold. And whether that was part of what happened or totally a coincidence, because kids are often very sick when they're in daycare and acclimating to that new environment, you know, it's anybody's guess. But that was, he was a completely healthy, thriving child. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so it wasn't like you expected anything and, um, yeah. And then, and then what happened?
1: Well, I guess I can start the story a bit by putting it in context. So like I've said, he died on September 20th, which uh, was just after his second birthday. And also for anyone aware of hurricane Maria just so happened to be the exact same morning that, uh, Puerto Rico was pretty much decimated by a terrible hurricane. Um, And as I've alluded to, that's where my family is from. So actually the night before he died on September 19th, I actually remember going to sleep that night feeling um, so terrified uh, that some sort of tragedy could befall my family. And Mm. I felt helpless. I felt um, worried and, and wondered in my mind how on earth we would... Survive it if something terrible happened to our dear cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents who all live there. Um, and so then the next morning, I woke up and probably six something. I don't know what time it was, and I was actually surprised that Jackson hadn't woken up yet. He was an early riser, but mm-hmm. I figured that he was just sleeping in. Like I said, maybe maybe it was a good thing. He was kind of under the weather. I thought, okay, he's getting the rest he needs, um, exactly. so I sort of just went on with my morning, um, which again was unusual because. Usually I woke up to him asking to be taken out of his right. crib. So I just sort of went on with my morning for a little bit. Um, and I actually took the opportunity to call my mom and check in on how the family was doing in Puerto Rico. I was very worried. Like I said, she gave me a preliminary report that everyone was safe so far, but that the eye of the hurricane still hadn't quite passed over. It was imminent. It was going to be happening within the hour. So we were very tense. Mm-hmm. I Hopped in the shower, I came out, I saw my husband and I said, is Jackson still sleeping? And he said, yeah, he's still sleeping. And I said, gosh, that's so surprising. And so we checked the monitor, there he was, looking asleep, and I thought, okay, he's still sleeping. And this kind of went on for a while, getting briefly distracted, checking with my mom about our family safety, and then checking back to the monitor. Um,
0: You're checking not him personally, but the monitor, which...
1: So it's like a we could hear and see. So I'm looking at him, and he's what I think asleep in his crib. He so looked he looks totally fine, just asleep. He looks totally yeah. fine. And so I sort of you know went back and forth like that for a while. And um, by about I want to say 7:45, I started to worry not that something even was wrong with him, but I was worried I'd be late for work. I was actually heading to DBT consult team. Um, And I was worried that Jackson was going to be late for daycare. So we did the unusual thing of having to wake up our child, which, again, Jackson's an early riser. We actually, I know parents often have to wake up their kids, but that was never true for us. So we kind of went in together and we said, okay, let's let's go wake him up and check on him. So we go in and um, went together and we found him dead in his crib. And it was the most horrific moment of my entire life.
0: I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: and it was apparent at that point that he had died at some point in the night um, without any cry or sound because we like I said, we had the monitor, so we could hear and see um, and as far as we can tell, he just never woke up because we didn 't hear anything and I have those super human mom ears that hear all the things um, yeah. and it was just shocking for all the reasons that you said before that he was this perfectly normal, healthy, thriving child he had just had his two year well child visit like the Thursday before like five oh days God. before um, yeah. so yeah no warning no no warning signs at all except that slight feeling under the weather and just thought he was coming down with a cold but as we all know healthy kids don't die from cold so it's it's unknown why he died
0: did you know did you know immediately that he was dead when you were right there or did you kind of double check your perceptions again and again or I mean you know, I just tried to imagine yeah
1: It's a wild thing, because in retrospect, I knew that he was dead the moment that I turned him over. Um, He had all the signs of having passed away, I don't know how many hours ago, but it had not just happened. um, He was um, clearly not, had not been alive for a while. Um, But it's that thing where you just cannot accept that in that moment. um, You just can't believe it in that moment. And of course, we just sort of were wildly you know screaming and calling 911 and um you know when I when I was talking on 911 with the dispatcher what I kept saying was hurry hurry my son is dying and then at some point I think I even said something like I mean, I think he's already dead, you know, so there was this sense of, yeah. you know, of course I knew that he wasn't alive anymore, but mm. there was this feeling of urgency, like, well, let's just wait and see, I, they're going to be here any second, I, they might be able to do something and, yeah, let's you know, do we, everything CPR, we can. all of that, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, So it was, you know, in retrospect, interesting how long it took us to really sink in with that reality, but it's understandable, I think, where people just cannot quite accept that in that moment.
0: So and you you and Brian came in both of you to the room
1: thank goodness we were together yes
0: yeah, yeah. so that was a good thing
1: that was a really good thing I, I I think about all the ways in which it could have been different and one of the things I feel grateful for it's strange to feel grateful about any circumstance of this event but one of the things I'm grateful for is that we were together at home I'm glad I wasn't alone
0: must be unimaginable if you were just alone or you know, if you were just a single parent or something like that.
1: Absolutely. And I know stories like that through connecting with other parents who have experienced a similar story. S U D C said an unexplained death in childhood. And um, and and there are there are other parents who have definitely done this alone and, and it's it's awful. Yeah, and I think that's what makes this both um, loss And trauma right because we know that loss of a loved one of any kind is a very very painful experience and what makes it beyond quote-unquote just a loss but actually a traumatic event is this quality you're describing about the sudden unexpected nature of it where it is just Mm -hmm. totally out of the blue Um, and I think that that's that's the trauma piece of it Um, and and it is a shock to your system and it's impossible to compute at first like I sort of described earlier mm-hmm. and um, yeah I just I have this this memory from that morning that it sort of speaks to I guess this idea that you are asking about and kind of connects with this idea of natural healing that you brought up earlier but I remember being upstairs in our bathroom shortly after this happened I mean you know of course we had call 911 all the um police and firefighters and paramedics and mm-hmm. um, medical examiner, all these people in our home and family and friends rushing in um is very chaotic and and at some point, I don't know maybe an hour after this happened, I'm upstairs in our in our bedroom bathroom with my husband alone, and I just remember just screaming over and over again like I can't, I can't, I can't and there was this sense of like absolute rejection of Mm. reality. Like this is not happening. I cannot cope with what's happening. I cannot Mm -hmm. handle what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there was this moment that was very powerful. And I've thought a lot about it since, but as I'm telling him, I can't, I can't, I can't. There was this sort of voice in my head that sort of gently rebutted, like, but you are like, here you are and you're Mm. doing it. And it, Mm. and it was this sort of, moment of uh surprise for me where i thought of course something like this if anything like this were ever to happen which i never expected would happen you expect that you would just sort of keel over and die or something Um, right but it was this first glimpse of a moment of like and i'm I'm somehow still living yeah Mm -hmm. and like the fact that my heart was still beating and my lungs were still breathing like my body was just pushing me along and helping me survive the unsurvivable. Um, and I think that that was the beginning of me understanding the grief process or even the trauma process as being a natural process. So I think that ties back to what you were you talking know what about. what I'm earlier. struck
0: with there is the. <clears throat> is the. Um, that you. You didn't think of it as this, but you um, you were able to remain mindful of the fact that you were alive, Yeah. Um, which sounds, of course, in some way, but I wouldn't say, of course, because I do think that it would be possible to be in that exact situation and not have that other voice occur to one to say, but I'm still here. I mean, it reminds me of all the practices that you've probably done and that people do. In meditation practices or in mindfulness <clears throat> practices when they breathing in I know that I'm breathing in and how that's the first simple exercise you learn with Thich Han. breathing in, I know I'm breathing in and breathing out I know that I'm breathing out is such a profound exercise and at a moment like what you were going through it was in sort of, you know, it was like I know that I'm here you know thinking that I'm going to die thinking I cannot make it but noticing that I'm still here is a profound um, thing and I would think some people might not actually get to the point at the beginning where they have that experience um, you'd have to have enough somehow presence of mind to know that and yet it does seem like it's like if there's anything at the very beginning that's an indicator of okay you're already on a process of mm-hmm. natural healing
1: mm-hmm.
0: it might that might be one of the pieces in the process
1: yeah, like that—that that was that was an important piece, and that is a great point. And I think, you know, you imagine like how on earth will I cope with this, and then you realize I already am coping with this. I'm already mm. on this journey, and I think that's been at the crux of what I've sort of learned the most through this is mm. that surviving trauma or grief or whatever we want to call this doesn't actually require that you know what you're doing or have a plan. Like I did have this initial strong urge, like I have to figure out what this is. How long does it take? What am I supposed to be doing kind of moment by moment? Because that's mm-hmm. a bit my personality is to be structured and, and, and clear in that way. Um, but I think it was powerful for me to learn that you don't really need a plan for how to recover from this. And frankly, you don't need a PhD to learn how to cu- recover from this. Right. And at the same time, the dialectic because those things also helped Um, it didn't hurt to have the background that I have to know um, these important principles could sort of guide my recovery
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah I think you hear these things from all kinds of people um, in whatever has been their life experience there's there's a certain wisdom about Recovery of from traumatic things that you find among people who've been through traumatic things. Mm -hmm. um, That you know, I think is worth worth sharing. I wanted to ask if you would say a little more about this really interesting thing you said about um, Mm -hmm. about the in a way the body, uh, you your whole you knowing that everybody knows how you know that this is a process you go through. Um, that grief or or loss or recovery or something is just a natural process. You don't have to go to a seminar on how to recover, but it's within your body. It's within evolution, whatever. Could you say more about what you mean about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the way I kind of came to think about it as I was going through this in those very early days is that the same way that human beings are wired to love, um, human beings are also wired to grieve. Um, and those are two okay. sides of the same coin in some way. Um, that this is not something, like you said, you need to take a seminar in to know how to do. This is something people have been doing for a long time. Um, and that as a species, we simply have tools to be able to do this. And, um, you mm-hmm. know, I have this uh, story about a, a friend um, who basic, and I shared this at the, at the eulogy when I spoke, but, um, you know, back when I was pregnant, I was very afraid of the birth process. And so I was in my ninth month of pregnancy talking with my good friend, uh, Sophia. And, um, what she said was, you know, I think all mothers need a sign in the delivery room that says you will get through this, like the billions of women that have gotten through this before you. Mm -hmm. And I remember sort of chuckling at that idea and also being comforted by that idea that, okay, Just, you know, just because something is excruciatingly painful doesn't mean we can't get through it. In fact, we're wired and and trained to get through that. Um, So for me, after Jackson died, that sort of came back and I thought to myself, okay, just as I doubted my ability to get through birth, this was a reminder to me that, again, no matter how excruciating the pain, I did have sort of these natural tools or ancient tools to recover from trauma and even the most horrific of losses. And I think that that was this, again, powerful idea for me about, yes, it is helpful to have um, this background that I do have, and I don't want to minimize how important that's been in my recovery process, but there Mm -hmm. is this sense that recovering after trauma is is possible and and actually kind of the norm. Um, And it's something that does happen for most people naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say um, that everybody is going to have that uh, trajectory either. Um, so one thing I want to make sure to say is that just because I've been able to adapt reasonably well to the trauma doesn't mean that anyone who's struggling with their own aftermath of trauma is to blame for their particular recovery trajectory or their PTSD or depression symptoms or whatever they're suffering from. The last thing I want to do is alienate listeners or accidentally fuel kind of unhelpful, untrue beliefs about there's something wrong with me, why am I not part of this natural recovery group? Because I think the reality is that it's never the trauma survivor's fault if they end up with PTSD or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we respond to and cope with traumas and losses, like you alluded to a minute ago, reflects so many factors like biological, social support, learn history, stigma, life stressors. And a lot of those are external or outside of our direct control. And so I do think looking back, I was lucky to be so privileged to have, like I said, the training that I have, the, the incredible social support that I have, just general stability, financial, otherwise, and frankly, surrounded by a community of psychologists. All of my friends are psychologists, everyone I work with is a psychologist. And I think um, that has really, really helped. So it, it's kind of this 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 message I want to say is that part of this is that natural recovery is the norm and it's possible and holding up also this piece, which is that I feel very fortunate to have these extra factors that really um, made it more possible for me to take the harder but ultimately more effective coping.
0: You know, I just talked to us some about what have been the main ingredients you think that helped you cope with this traumatic situation over the past eight months?
1: Yeah, well I could definitely break it down, uh, DB skill, DBT skills and modules because let me tell you I feel very mm. grateful to have that as like a, kind of structured framework for thinking through a lot of these things. Um, And I'll start with acceptance, Um, Mm -hmm. as we often do. um, I think that, like I said, it wasn't something I was going to be able to radically accept the moment it happened. In fact, I did not accept it the moment it happened, nor could I, really. Um, But I think over time, I realized that that was something that needed to happen. And interestingly, um, you know, there's something that a lot of people have said to me which is uh, the idea like no parent should ever have to bury their child Hmm. and I think that um, it's well-intentioned and I think it makes sense that people say that it's an effort to kind of validate or comfort our loss and our pain and and I I know it's a well-intentioned sentiment and at the same time I think that that's sort of what was at the root of my suffering I mean a lot of things were at the root of the suffering but that in particular this should like Jackson should not have died was a really, really tricky stuck point for me. And what I realized is that it was actually increasing my suffering to buy into this idea. So what I realized early on was was that acceptance was going to be critical here. Um, and I had to work to let go of this idea that he shouldn't have died. And as I was able to do that, I noticed that my suffering went down or as Marcia would say, turns excruciating suffering into quote-unquote just pain and Mm -hmm. I think it's really just rooted in this notion that The belief that I was owed more time with Jackson was making it worse And so shifting towards focusing on what time we did have together as being a gift and not a given Mm -hmm. Was really helpful and I think the other thing with acceptance is just sometimes controversial well, given everything that came before, it sh- couldn't have been any other way, or it should have been this way. And I think you know, that's the I want to ask part. you.
0: I think what yeah. you're saying right now is so, so huge that um, I want to. Maybe maybe not much more can be said about it, but I want to ask because I think when you say when you say this about no no parent should have to be their, bury their child and one shouldn't have to uh, that he shouldn't have died and you are owed more time with him. Each time you said one of those, I thought, yeah, damn it. <laughs> that's true
1: yeah
0: I mean yeah. it's like even now even and I'm once uh, I'm way removed from it compared to your situation and I thought wait a minute don't go past that so quickly yes you are owed that but um, <laughs> yeah but yeah but I and so I want and and yet you talk about it you're talking about something in a period of one paragraph that would be a lifetime of emotional work um, yeah in some ways and I wonder how so what I guess I want to ask is can you say anything was there anything that you did that's actually reproducible or or discoverable or mentionable um, that you actually did that moved you in the direction of um, from uh, thinking uh, i am owed more time to thinking no, I'm not really owed anything. It, it A terrible thing happened. I'm really sad. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's really, it isn't a question of fair or unfair. It isn't a question of what I was owed or what I should have had. I mean, how did you move in that direction, which I can certainly see, and I would think most people could see that it would help with some of the degree of suffering, though it might actually liberate even more of a certain kind of sadness?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I definitely didn't arrive at it overnight. And, like, I yeah. often... Um, say to clients too, I think acceptance is something you sort of bop in and out of at times, even if you can radically accept something completely, there's mm-hmm. going to be times that you fall out of that. And that does happen to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I will say that in terms of, you know, what, what allowed me to think in this way, um, I think it kind of goes back to some mindfulness, but noticing how I felt when I thought about it as if he shouldn't have died, like when I heard that, at the same time that it was comforting again, because I could tell someone was trying to comfort me, I just noticed my anger, just my suffering go up. And then I read this New York Times article that somebody had shared with me early on. I think the title of it is Not All Children Live. It was it was some horrible story about a, mm. a parent who was walking, I think in New York City, actually walking with their child in some sort of a brick cell from a tall place and just killed their child on the street. It was something mm. like that. Mm. And them talking about, and the title was Not All Children Live. And I remember my reaction to that. It was a horrible story, and I felt awful reading about this, this poor tragedy. And at the same time, I was like, you're right, not all children live. People uh-huh. die. And I think there's this piece about it that I just noticed how I felt, like my, what my reaction was in my body to statements like not all children live and parents should never have to bury their child. And I noticed that the suffering lifted when I sort of accepted that death, you know, we are mortal beings and and whatever took Jackson that's the tricky part is I don't know what took him but whatever took him uh followed laws of nature chemistry physics and there is a comfort in that because then if that's true then given everything that led up to his death whatever that was whether in his brain or his heart or a seizure or whatever it was then he actually again controversial but should have died and it's a really, really hard thing to stomach. And it's taken me a while to stomach that. But it's, it's kind of I think of it this way, like, I wish that whatever took him obviously spared him instead, I wish that with right. all my might. But that would be like dropping an egg off of a skyscraper and wishing it didn't break, like something natural caused him to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that helps me to accept it. And I have noticed that my suffering has gone down since
0: how do you function and not how do you function and also feel terrible and let yourself function is is a skill in
1: itself I think you're so right about that and I can relate so much to to that thinking Um, and I think that's been an important one for us to to take in which is you know functioning is not negating or invalidating our pain Mm. because it can feel like it's mutually exclusive it's one or the other Um, and the reality is like with many things it is both Mm-hmm. Um, you can be functioning and and experiencing pain, and thankfully it 's a pain that is not totally destroying your life in a way that you know you can keep your job, you can keep your relationships, keep doing mm-hmm. the things that are meaningful to you and important to you um, but that the pain is still there and and it doesn 't mean it 's not there
0: natalia i 'm going to start with a tough question i mean not maybe not, maybe it 's not tough in terms of the content of how what to say, but I think it's pain points it's a painful question I would think is that I wonder if you can say something about um, the changes you've had to deal with um, I started thinking about it and thinking God, it must change your entire life this whole last eight months just everything being different every day every morning every night and everything and I so I, I'm wondering not to hear that just for the sake of hearing it but as part of hearing how you've been attempting to cope with all the reminders uh, of, of such a profound loss?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And, um, you know, given that Jackson was our only child, um, our lives changed so dramatically overnight, literally overnight, um, in that it felt for weeks that our life was just unrecognizable from what it was before. Um, and I felt for a while that I had this sort of internal clock or something um, that hadn't quite caught up with the events and the news of what had happened. What I mean by that is it was really, um, I don't know, I was very painfully aware of you know, every meal that lapsed, every nap time that lapsed, every bath time that lapsed. It was mm. like some part of my body just hadn't quite adjusted to the change that had occurred. And I was mm-hmm. still expecting to see those things. I would be driving in my car and look in the rear view mirror, expecting to see Jackson in his car seat and then to not see him there. It was really, um, Oh boy. it, it was really intense mm. at first. And of course now it's been eight months or so and, um, you know, We've resumed some sense of normalcy. Obviously, there's no way to return to our old lives, um, but we have resumed a sense of day-to-day that is less shocking in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do have to credit um, approach as a concept um, to what has helped me to do that. Um, What I mean by approach is essentially the opposite of avoidance, which I know that um, Melanie spent a good amount of time talking about in her... Uh, episodes uh, with you a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and um, I think that that was um, that was foundational for me. And, and hopefully, we get to social support as well today. But those are the two big things that I that I think I I majorly credit um, for how we got through those those early days, those early weeks. Um, and um, I'll just start by. Saying that this is actually what I study. Like you said, I, um, sort of specialize in, in PTSD and trauma and, and, and recovery. Um, and so for me, this is kind of the bread and butter of what I study is avoidance. Um, mm. and so I was very grateful after losing Jackson to have this as part of my background or my training. Um, so that I could kind of be on the lookout for it, um, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll start Are by you- saying, yeah.
0: So you're saying that the two big things, sort of like topics for us, um, that spread out in front of us would be um, how you've approached mm-hmm. rather than avoided um, something about this loss and also um, how you've managed or what how your social support system has been helpful.
1: Yes, and how those sort of interact even in helping
0: um, mm.
1: social support uh, systems to help me in my... Um, in my mission to, to kind of lead this more approach lifestyle instead of the avoidance lifestyle that is so understandable after a trauma happens because the reality is avoidance, um, to a trauma reminder or a situation or anything that, that takes you back is so common and understandable. Um, uh, in the very short term, it reduces our fear, our anxiety when we avoid or escape reminders. Um, it's, it's a really, really natural, um, Response to being reminded of something really awful that that feels very painful to remember. Uh, we also know though that in the long run, sort of persistent avoidance of you know non-dangerous trauma reminders can actually lead to problems downstream, namely PTSD. Um, and so, as Melanie described in her podcast, we know that. Avoidance can really get in the way of recovery because what happens is it prevents corrective learning that is really important for processing the trauma, for getting oneself out of that shock. Um, So I think that that was a really important thing for me to keep in mind.
0: Hmm. What do you Um, mean, collective learning?
1: Corrective. Corrective, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think of it as kind of this, this approach mindset um, helps people to get kind of back into the driver's seat with their lives. So, you know, instead of having fear and avoidance running your life, dictating where you go, who you see, what you talk about, how you remember things, um, really doing the opposite of that and and learning to approach, obviously, non-dangerous reminders um, gives you some ability to reclaim control in your life and I think that that was really really important for us and again establishing this this new normal of whatever this new life is for us um, you, and we did, know
0: did you yeah. find yourself avoiding things
1: oh absolutely absolutely the urge to avoid is so so strong um, I have I, I could just list off so many things that I felt like avoiding I remember the the morning that he died I was outside um, when the police arrived and the, like I said, the firefighters and the paramedics and everybody. Um, and I was outside on the lawn and I just remember my husband coming over to me and the very first thing I said to him was, there's no way I'm ever going to step foot back in that house. Mm. I was so clear that I would never be able to be back in the house. And of course Mm. this is, we're talking, you know, within the hour after this happened, Mm. um, and we had just bought our house actually um oh. go figure about a month before um, Jackson died and and I was so sure there was no way I was ever going to be able to step foot in the house again no no way that I'd be able to look at his toys again watch videos of him look at photos of him it was so 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 painful Um, and I think that that urge to avoid is so so natural because these are really painful cues Um, so it it is this very intentional thing to kind of do the opposite of that urge to avoid and and that approach mentality takes a lot of courage and can be a little counterintuitive to what your body is telling you to do you know unlike what we talked about earlier where Again, I I believe that there is this sense of natural recovery, and our bodies know what to do. Um, I have to say that the urge for me and for a lot of people is get me away from this reminder. I don't want to I don't want to dive into the deep deep sadness or deep deep fear that exists when I think about this. So it is really really common. Um, but it was nice to have. The knowledge that I have about avoidance and approach, kind of in my back pocket, to sort of guide me in living that exposure lifestyle and really avoid succumbing to the what can be life-destroying avoidance patterns. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Now, look, so, I yeah. said something last week, and I'm tempted to say a similar thing, but it's about it's about this, but it, which was different. It was last time you said something about the kind of thoughts that you had to come to terms with um, that were catastrophic kinds of thinking, which. I said when you said that that you had to come to terms. Of it, I thought, what do you mean, come to terms with it? I, see, that sounds very real. It sounds correct to me. <laughs> and and yeah. and I want to say about this that um, the urge to get away from those things, uh, as much as grieving may be a natural, biologically informed process, I think that the urge to get away from things is probably also a natural, in, you know, biologically informed process. And I'm just wondering. Um, and you, I can see the value of both. But how soon did you start to try to get yourself deliberately to um, uh, go against the urge to avoid? And, and, yeah. what, and what do you think you've learned from that about how soon one should?
1: yeah it's a good question and I want to speak briefly to what you just said because it's a really important point which is that avoidance as an urge itself is actually really adaptive and it's something that is hardwired along with everything else that's resilient about the way we react as a species mm-hmm. to threat um, and and it it's really normal and very very adaptive when you are it's a program for escaping danger or threat. What becomes problematic about avoidance isn't just that we have avoidance, but when we start to avoid things that are not objectively dangerous, but that simply remind us of something that is very, very painful. Mm -hmm. And in the immediate aftermath, I think, um, you know, we give ourselves a little bit of grace, period. Um, If anything, for me, because of the training that I have, I was almost a little bit too eager to, like, jump right in. But I actually had to remind myself, it's okay to to give yourself a little bit of a grace period. You don't have to do this immediately right away for every cue that's out there. Um, but it was something that I had on my radar. And then I mm-hmm. noticed opportunities mm-hmm. for this. And actually, the very first time that I really thought to myself, I need to do an exposure, um, was probably about a couple of weeks after Jackson died. We were actually back in our house which I guess is an exposure in and of itself, um, but more by... Well,
0: by the way, are you still in the same house?
1: I am in the same house. Okay. Yeah. And I have to say, as of about three weeks ago, um, we decided to leave Jackson's bedroom door open. It's something mm-hmm. that we've kind of opened, closed at different times. So oh my God, um, yeah. even within the same, you know approach behavior of even living in our house, there's different degrees of how you go about living in one's house Sure. Uh, in that way. But, um, it was probably about two weeks after Jackson died that, um, I did my first exposure and I knew it was needed because I was sitting on the couch talking with Brian and I just broke down into tears and, um, and he was comforting me. And what I told him was at the root of my suffering. As I said, I don't think I'll ever be able to watch a video of Jackson again. And Mm. that was so, so sad for me. And, Mm. and I said, I just know if I hear his voice, I'm just going to like self implode with grief and never come out of it. And the moment I heard myself saying those words out loud, I heard the voice of my clients. I heard the voice of, people who I know who have struggled with PTSD after trauma. And that was the moment I said, oh, my gosh, I know exactly what I need to do. I, I need to watch a video. Mm. Um, I needed the corrective learning that I could handle it, that it wouldn't kill me, that I wouldn't self-implode, and to get me to a place where I could get to watch videos of Jackson with less distress, which now is such a gift and I think such a special Thing that I still have and still get to do, Mama, and yeah. it would be such a shame to not have that. Mm. So that was sort of the rationale in my head. But I have to say, just because I had a rationale doesn't mean it was easy. In fact, um, we had we had a really hard time doing this. Um, my heart was just pounding in my chest. I'll, I'll never forget how that felt. It just mm. I thought I could see it coming out of my chest, and I was mm. filled with the most indescribable. I don't know, dread. And it felt like every part of my body was just saying no. And yet I knew it was something that was important to do and that I wanted to do. Um, so, so I did it and we had a few false starts, um, first, it was getting out the phone and opening the photo app, and then I just saw the still image, you know, with the play button ready to go, mm-hmm. and felt massive urges to escape. I just wanted to run away, put away the phone, just tell him I changed my mind, and I definitely could have done those things. Um, I don't think I had to do the exposure in that moment, and it would have been okay to delay it for a while, but mm-hmm. I, I just felt this strong commitment to following through because I knew that this fear that was underlying this avoidance was tormenting me, and it didn't have mm-hmm. to torment me. Mm-hmm. Um, so So that was what got me, that's what gave me the courage to keep doing it. And mm-hmm. when I finally did it, actually Brian was the one that hit play, what first happened almost confirmed my fear. I let out just the hugest, most visceral sob, and I felt grief permeate through my entire body, just mm. hearing his sweet voice, and I absolutely did fill up with grief, but I did not self employ with grief and it did not last forever. And in fact I actually noticed that as I was watching the video I was smiling through the crying and that as soon as the video was over I told him play it again. <laughs> I just didn't oh, really? want it to stop. Yeah, oh. and watched it a handful of times and did there you want to see it again or
0: that did that come from your kind of academic No, knowledge?
1: I wanted to see it again. It was a surprising It was a surprising reaction. I wasn't expecting to feel that, but Mm. I was like, you know, I was like, I want to see it again. And, and there was sadness for sure. But like I said, it was, it was both. It was like smiling to hear his sweet voice. I hadn't heard in two weeks, the longest I had gone, not hearing his voice, but also, also sadness, but i had I felt this sense of conquering the fear, and it took doing it several times and over the course of several days um, but what I learned was that alongside the predictable sadness, there was that loveliness in hearing his voice, and like I said, I learned that it didn't kill me I didn't self implode the way I very Realistically thought I would which sounds a little bit dramatic, but it really was that intensive fear mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing I learned that I could tolerate the distress. It really did happen I did get distressed But I obtained the reward of hearing his voice again, and mm-hmm. so this was just a huge gift And for me really set up the avoiding getting in the way of my life because there's plenty of things that we avoid But they don't really get in the way of our lives and so if it's mm-hmm. not causing that impairment then it may not be something that we totally have to approach head on. Um, uh-huh. There's plenty of things, actually, I still haven't approached. For example, um, there's a certain Greek restaurant that Jackson really likes to go to. Um, mm. He loved the Euros, and um, we haven't been back there. But I know that if I wanted to go back there or needed to go back there, that I could. Mm. Um, I have the confidence that I could because of all the other exposures that I've sort of um, well that brings thinking. up
0: one of the things that you mentioned in an email to me, which is that um you don't necessarily have to go every do everything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think Melanie made the same point. You don't necessarily have to revisit every single trauma to be helpful to them. So this is just a fabulous example of that. That yeah. the things you've already managed to go through make it so that you have the confidence that you could go through some Mm -hmm. of the other ones you haven't done that's already like a big deal
1: Yes. And that learning sort of generalizes. So you increase the sense of mastery that you can tolerate things, um, that the the stress isn't as big as you would expect it to be, or if it is that you can handle it. Um, And I think that that learning kind of permeates and and spreads even farther than, you know, discrete exposures. So You don't have to hit every single thing. Um, And And yet there are some things that really do need an explicit exposure. So, you know, for me, I wanted to be able to watch videos of Jackson, so I was going to have to do that. Um, The other big one for me was being able to park at work, which sounds so super unrelated to losing Jackson, but the, the connection there is that I used to drop him off at daycare, which was right by my office. Oh. And there was this big parking structure where we would park together, and then I would walk him to the elevator, and we'd take the elevator right down to daycare. I'd drop him off, and then I'd walk to work. Right. So at first, the thought of having to park in that garage without Jackson, with, with my empty car, and just right. walk straight to my office instead was more intolerable than I can even communicate. It was it was such a painful thought that I would have to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And and I realized that this was going to be functionally impairing. I needed to get to work. I needed to be able to park. And actually, some people suggested, well, maybe get a new parking garage. Um, and I thought about it. I thought, okay, well, if my goal is to get back to work, that would suffice. Um, I could do that, but it's many blocks away. It's kind of inconvenient. And it would also mean I missed out on that extra corrective learning that I could tolerate even some of the hardest cues. So I thought, okay, I'm going to confront this one. And, you know, at first it was, you know, little things like just – getting myself near the garage, um, driving with company. I used to go with my husband. He used to come to work with me kind of like those first few days. He works remotely so he could come to my office with me. I have um, a really good friend, Rosie, who would often come with me. I'd pick her up at her house and we'd park together and walk to the lab together. And that helped me with my initial goal of being able to park in the garage. But I also did that being very aware that I was using, quote, unquote, what we refer to as safety signals, which are kind of controversial in our field. It's these things that you do during the exposure that can be problematic when overused because then your corrective learning becomes sort of contingent on basically having your friend there or in classic PTSD examples, having your anti-anxiety meds in your pocket or carrying a weapon or something like that. Wearing the
0: correct socks.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: In order to face a difficult day.
1: Totally. And I wanted to be able to park in the garage regardless of whether my husband or Rosie were with me. You know, what if Rosie was sick one day, would I be able to get to work? So I was mindful of those sort of baby steps, using them essentially as warm ups, but I knew eventually I'd have to wean myself off of them and and really get to the place where I am now, which is I park there every day with very minimal distress. I do feel sadness sometimes. Sometimes I park next to a car where I see a car seat in the back or run into an old daycare family or a teacher or something that reminds me of what the past life was. Um, Mm -hmm. but importantly, I know I can handle it and I have Mm -hmm. gained a lot of mastery from doing things like this.
0: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: and I think that's how this all kind of connects with social support, which Mm. has been just this, um, it's this huge topic that I definitely want us to, to start the conversation on now. And, um, I think what has been huge around social support is inviting others into this journey of not avoiding. Mm. Um and I think that yes I was I was telling you um this story and um basically um to, just to back up for a second I think something I mentioned at the end of the last podcast just to kind of frame this up is that um on the one hand it's true that it shouldn't be the responsibility of a bereaved person Um, or a traumatized person to be in charge of telling others how to support them. It's sort of this idea of you're putting an unnecessary burden on that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And meanwhile, the other truth lies in our active participation in shaping our environment, um, in that there is this transaction between the way others support us and the way we respond. And I Mm -hmm. think that that has been something really interesting for me. So that goes back to this this story of basically I went over to my friend's house and this was probably, I want to say about two months after Jackson died or so. And we walked in, I'll I'll never forget it. We walked into the, through the back where the kitchen is. And as soon as Mm -hmm. the door opened, you know, we, we gave hugs and greeted our friends. And I immediately saw Jackson's photo from his second year birthday party on mm-hmm. her fridge, because, mm-hmm. um, like I said, he died just after his second birthday party, so that was still mm-hmm. on her fridge. Mm-hmm. And um, and I sort of immediately gravitated towards it. I, I without even thinking, I think I just walked over. I I placed. I just kind of like run my my fingers across his face, and I, I'm sure I had probably some tears in my eyes. And anyways, my friend came running up and she just said, oh my gosh, I'm so, so sorry. I didn't know whether I should leave that up or take it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment for me that it was so clear. It was this aha moment of, of course, when people see me crying, they think that they've misstepped, that they've done something wrong. Nobody wants to make a bereaved parent cry. Um, and, And yet, what I really felt was true was that I wanted to talk about Jackson. I wanted to see that other people were thinking of him and honoring him. And it was really beautiful to walk in their home and see him so prominently featured in the middle mm. of their fridge. And mm. I thought to myself, okay, this is, this is that moment where we transact with our social support. And I realized in that moment that I had to be really explicit in really behaviorally communicating to people that I needed Jackson front and center, that Mm -hmm. I wanted to invite me in not avoiding. Um, And that was the moment I decided I was going to do a Christmas card, actually, because Uh I wasn't originally planning to do one. And I thought, well, crap, I I want his photo everywhere. Um, So I'm not only going to send a Christmas card this year, but instead of sending 50, I think I'm going to send like 150. And I actually tripled the size of our Christmas list because I realized how much I wanted people to know that that's what I needed.
0: I mean, and on the Christmas card, can you tell me what you had on the card?
1: Yes. I actually went through so many templates. It was a little painful actually looking through all those templates because you know how mm. Christmas cards can be with their messages. But um, I found the perfect one, and it said, A Year to Remember. And it was like a collage of 12 photo uh, oh. slots. And so I picked 12 wow. photos, and I just had them there. and And it was actually... A really beautiful card, and um, I have to say, we actually included a letter where we told people um, that that that's what we really wanted, was their participation in helping us remember Jackson this Christmas, that mm. we wanted to talk about him. And we actually kicked off what we refer to as the Kindness Project, which we can talk about uh, today or more next you time. You
0: kicked that off at the time of Christmas, the Christmas card? Yes.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. So the Christmas card with uh-huh. a letter and an invitation to participate in the Kindness project which was basically mm-hmm. spreading acts of kindness in honor of Jackson and it was just this total invitation to other people to to do that with us to, to, mm. to have Jackson front and center and, and it felt maybe you know obvious but then suddenly not obvious and that's why I really wanted to be explicit with it
0: mm. let me ask you this as I listen to you some of the things that you say that are particularly specific Are touching and I get tears in my eyes just listening to you and I was thinking did you find that in trying to steer your friends towards and invite them into not avoiding with you did did they have difficult feelings they had to cope with
1: oh I'm I'm sure they did and and you know I'm sure they did. Um, I think that the main fear that they were operating with was fear of saying the wrong thing, fear yes. of hurting us, of, of, of doing something to make it worse. And and I I know that because I've been there. Before Jackson died, I can think back to times where I wasn't sure how to support someone or what to say or if to say right. and and I, I, I recognize that sort of paralyzing fear where due to fear of saying something wrong, we say nothing. And I think something that I have learned definitely through this is that silence can be more painful than watching somebody stumble over clunky sentiments because no one expects that everyone has the perfect thing to say and there is no perfect thing to say. There's just this need to say something, say anything. Um, yeah. and, And I think that I've definitely learned that and looked back in my life at times where I wish I had known that
0: you know I think um, I've this has got me thinking about this that how many people I've known that have gone through a tragedy or a trauma or an illness maybe depression maybe they had cancer maybe they had some terrible thing happen in their family maybe they did something that they were particularly embarrassed about and then there's the trauma of going through that, or the loss of going through that, depending what it is. And and then there's the horrible trauma, if you want to call it that. I don't want to overuse the word, but um, the the additional suffering brought about by the fact that people don't know what to say, mm-hmm. and don't speak, and so you're left. I mean, you just think when you're one person who does that, you think, well, I just don't know what to say, but somebody else will be talking. But it turns out in some cases that I've known. Whole groups of people have then kind of vanished from the scene who had been friends for years and years and years, and somebody's left in a vacuum. And the vacuum itself, it seems to me, deprives the person of the opportunity of recovery
1: mm-hmm.
0: with those people mm-hmm. and with the help of those people.
1: Absolutely. And, and I heard a lot of, you know, in the immediate aftermath of this, like, I want to give you space and um, just, just lots of, of things of, of retreat. And people doing it with the best intentions, not knowing, um, not knowing that that's not helpful. Mm. And again, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I can't speak for everybody who's been through something like this, but for me, I very much knew I did not want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. That's not what I needed. And so mm-hmm. that was part of this being really explicit and basically wanting to to say exactly what I found helpful and didn't find helpful. Um, and help people because I knew I knew because I've been in their shoes that it's not totally obvious what to do Mm. Um, and so you know one thing I did which I found helpful and I think was kind of a win-win for for Brian and I and also for our support systems was to sort of we wrote this sort of open letter. I wrote this open letter that was called like a note to my mama friends. So my friends that are mothers particularly. Mm. Um, and I wrote about this being really uncharted territory for us, at least for me. I had never obviously experienced anything like this. And it was an invitation to have them keep inviting me into their lives mm. and not let them go with this assumption that I wouldn't want to be around their kids because it's mm. too painful. Mm. Because the reality is, the stings do occur. When I hang out with our friends who have toddlers, it can and does activate my loss. Um, It is both hard, but also enjoyable and, and nurturing. Um, And watching their kids grow up makes me both happy and long for Jackson. It's just introducing them to dialectical thinking, I think has been huge for us. Um, And just the overall message of, You know, I accept these things for the greater goal of staying connected to you. Mm -hmm. So basically, willingness together to take missteps together in the service of staying connected. And I think
0: I think that that has been helpful. Did any of your mama friends have uh, tell you what their reactions were to getting that letter?
1: Yes, um, a lot of them reached out and were very, very grateful for mm. for me basically addressing the elephant in the room. And I have to say, um, if you know behavioral evidence is a thing, I have invitations all the time to um, spend time with these families. Actually, almost every weekend we mm. spend time with um, some families from our what we call our PEPs group. It's like a parenting support group when you give birth and you want to know other parents in a similar age and stage as your child. So we've been close with them for two years and, and we still spend almost every weekend we, we connect with these families. Um, I still connect with the, with the teachers from his daycare. We've had them over for dinner. We do rock painting with painting memories of Jackson. Um, the other families from the daycare, I still get brunch with those moms. And, um, we're, we're really, really connected still with those people. And I, I think that's evidence that people appreciated being told exactly how we wanted to keep them in I think our lives.
0: They, I, my guess is they did. And, you know, I said earlier that uh, some people might not say anything and might er- appear to recede because they don't know what to say. But I think there's another reason people recede, which is that they're not comfortable that they're, yes. that it's upsetting to be around somebody who has had this happen. Um, yeah. It's even more so, I think, um, and then people take their cues from that person. So mm-hmm. people back off from somebody who's going through a major depressive episode, and they um because they don't because they not only don't they know what to say and they don't feel that what they say is very helpful, but also they then it activates their own painful feelings
1: oh, and, of course.
0: and they don't know what to do about. and so why why add that to your? So people have rationalizations, I think, that are understandable where they say, well, then I think it, I think that person would be better off not to have me right. call. Uh, they'll, it'll just bother them when, in fact, they're sitting home alone, yeah. um, things like that. So I think that there's also that. And I think the fact that you indicated that you are interested in feedback, I mean, removes a lot of the trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't expect everyone to do that, but it seems like your mommy letter is so great, it
1: I'll start by saying that, you know, events like this, whether a trauma or a loss or something else really uh, of huge magnitude, can be something that is a real stressor on a marriage. And that's for certain. Um, And at the same time, it can also be something that I think can bring you together. Um, I got that sense pretty early on in the immediate aftermath of all of this. Like Brian and I were sort of our instinct was just to cling together like we were hanging on for dear life. Um, And even though there was loads of support that was flooding in, there was this sense that really only Brian could know the depths of my grief and of my loss, and only Brian knew Jackson as well as I did, this idea that his brain actually housed so many of our shared memories, even some unique Mm -hmm. stories, Mm -hmm. things that he shared with me since he died. And there was just this very early sense of like, I don't know, losing Brian would have sort of been like losing Jackson all over again. Um, and so for us, we've felt very, very grateful um, that the effect of losing Jackson has not been to break us up, but in fact has actually pulled us closer together. Mm. And, and I do think that there are reasons for that. In other words, there are protective factors at play. Um, that make that easier uh, to be the case for us. And I think one of those is that we really didn't blame each other. Um, I think that, again, speaking of things we're grateful for, we are, despite this horrible thing that has happened, we were grateful for the circumstances such that it was really hard to blame each other I can think of plenty of other situations where it would be a lot easier to fall into that trap as a couple or in a relationship. Um, and certainly we could have found ways to blame each other. But but in essence, um, that was sort of off the table from the get-go, which I think was really, really protective. And in general, we had a strong foundation. We had been together for 10 years or so. Um, and we've always been pretty highly communicative and open in our sharing, you know, talking every day about the things of substance, asking the hard questions, being there for each other. It also helps that we um, met with a grief counselor actually a little bit for a while. Um, Mm. So uh, weekly at first, and then we sort of tapered off every other week. Um, And I think that she was really helpful in helping us to do this because certainly our relationship had been tested in other ways before over the decade of being together, but we had never really encountered grief together. And what she really helped us understand was, That it's okay to have different styles of grieving and recovery, Um, and it was also important to stick together. And those Mm -hmm. are some, you can do that at the same time. So, what I mean by different styles, um, I was sort of more like a leaky faucet, is what I call it. I sort of cried on and off every day for months. Um, And I was much more inclined to do things like writing and reading and connecting with people, talking on the phone with people, FaceTiming with people, Um, whereas Brian was more of like one huge cry per week. Um, And he did a lot of more activities like gardening and exercising and house projects. Um, And so in that way, we actually did kind of have different styles. And at times that felt sort of odd uh, but what our grief counselor helped us understand is that there's nothing wrong with having different styles and there shouldn't be this pressure to grieve exactly the same way and side-by-side side all the time. And she also pointed out that even though we're grieving the same child, we're grieving different relationships to that same child. Oh, um, right. And I think that was a profound kind of, oh, you're right. Um, so, you know, she encouraged us to grieve together at times, and that looked like, sharing Jackson memories, planning projects in his honor, um, reading some of the same grief books and discussing them. But then we also grieved separately, and that was okay. So we actually, to this day, we say goodnight to his urn and his lovey that's on our mantle pretty much every night, and we do that separately. It's actually something that we don't do together. Um, you do what? And what is it on your mantle? It's his urn. Um, his so urn, So we, yeah. we cremate it, yeah. And so yeah. he has this little urn, and it just says, Jackson Antonio Clark, and it says um, always in our hearts, and it's just Mm -hmm. this little urn that sits on our mantle, and we have his lovey, which is basically like a little, um, for parents with young children, it's like a little blanket slash stuffed animal that, you know, they kind of cuddle with at night, like a security thing, and so anyways, we have that on top of his urn, and and that's um, on top of the mantle, and so every night, we separately Mm -hmm. say goodnight to Jackson, and, and sometimes we even talk to Jackson, but we do that alone we don't really do that together, so I, I think she helped us see that we can do things differently and independently and also be side by side in the importance of sticking together overall through the process.
0: And I just think it's wonderful that you guys have found a way to um, honor each other's different ways of doing this, and at the same you know try to make sure the bone heals in a way that's appropriate for both ends. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely, speech. and I, and I yeah, it's very tricky, and um, I think the other piece of it, which sort of leads to the other part of this question from the listener, um, yeah. is that it's also kind of a moving target, right, because there's also ways in which not only we might be different to begin with, but we are changing
0: mm-hmm. as
1: this is happening, um, and so um, I believe part of the question was, how has this changed us as people, um, you know, pre mm-hmm. and post losing Jackson, and I think I think that's That's what makes it a moving target. And um, just to answer that question, I can pretty much say with absolute certainty and confidence that I'm no longer the person I used to be. And that sounds like a really strong statement. Um, Mm -hmm. But the reality is that that's not necessarily a totally bad thing either, Uh, though I would be lying if I said I wouldn't undo this tragedy and all the wisdom I've gained along the way in a heartbeat if I could. Um, But there is this sadness, I guess, that is now part of our daily lives that I'm not sure will ever really go away and that's something that um, has changed. Um, uh, you know, I'll preface this by saying that Brian and I were quite fortunate uh, before Jackson died to have pretty blissfully happy lives. Um, you know, we had normal challenges and stressors, but we were sort of, as Brian calls it, stupid happy, <laughs> like blissfully unaware of what was to come or mm-hmm. what could come. Um, and, you know, by now we can finally enjoy things and laugh regularly, but we also still miss Jackson and cry regularly too, and that's, that's a change for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and although we've gone to a place where we can experience joy again, and I'm very grateful for that, it's what Brian and I sort of refer to as complicated joy. There is this thing that has changed in a pretty permanent way in that sense. But I will say we've come certainly a long way from the initial immense emptiness and hopelessness and frankly not wanting to be alive feelings um, and lots of fear, so much fear that something like this could happen Mm -hmm. again to a future child, to someone else, to our living family members. But what has changed sort of um, over time, this has sort of lended itself to also a lot of growth and new perspectives, and I think that's the part where I would say has changed us for the better. Um, And I can speak to that briefly, but basically one way in which I think I have sort of also permanently changed is I feel like I woke up through this whole process, mm-hmm. sort of um, awake to the fragility and the preciousness of life, and also just this incredible illusion we carry of control and planning our futures. Mm-hmm. Um I, planned my life to a T and it' still this still happened um, and mm-hmm. so I sort of woke up to this and I think related to that I became actually quite grateful um, for each day that someone I love does keep living um, you just after things like this you don't take things for granted the way you did before um, mm-hmm. and I guess with that being more mindful like I don't know I've become like less of a neurotic planner I guess less anxious especially about trivial things. Um, I've just sort of realized that so many things just simply don't matter or the opposite, realizing that we often quickly pass by things that really do matter. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess altogether that makes us more intentional about meaningful work and meaningful relationships. It's just like this utter and profound respect for time and life.
0: Uh, you you keep implying it sounds like that you are thinking of having another child at some point. This hasn't turned turned you away from the a plan to have a child to raise.
1: You know, I'll be honest the day that Jackson died, I actually said to somebody I don't think I could ever have another child again.
0: Yes, it's understandable feeling.
1: Yeah, it, it was really strong. It was just like, this is too much to risk. This, this is mm-hmm. there's too much. Um, I don't think I could put myself through anything like this ever again. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: But interestingly, it only took probably like a week after Jackson died where I started to have kind of strong feelings of, Of just really wanting to be a parent again Um, and so we do we do plan to to be parents again and it's something that is very scary um, but also um, something really rewarding I think that once we had the experience of how meaningful it can be to have a child in our home it is hard to go back to that and I think that is something that's unique about losing an only child as opposed to losing a child when you have Mm. other children in the house. And I can imagine actually my friend I keep referring to from uh, the SUDC Foundation who lives on the other side of the country like I said she has two other children and so we've talked a lot about you know, the inherent kind of pros and cons of both situations, because that's also really hard to care for other children while you are trying to just barely take care of yourself. Um, So so there is something inherently very challenging about having children in the house when you're going through something like this. But Hmm. for Brian and I, it it was such a night and day, like there was a huge emptiness. And so we are very afraid, but like the mentality with your exposure song um, and what we've been talking about, the... Approach that the desire for having parenthood in our life again and having a mm-hmm. child in our life again is strong enough that it helps us have the courage to mm-hmm. approach something that does feel very scary.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Yeah. and that is this is especially it has all these special features because of being an only child. Mm-hmm. And I think about it, I hadn't even thought of that angle on it i mean we have we always have two dogs yeah when we lose a dog we always go through something because we get so attached to think that's it there's no other replace there's no replacement for this dog Mm -hmm. and we just can't there a time has to pass before we can even imagine it Mm -hmm. and then somehow it comes up and we realize oh we're thinking about that again Mm -hmm. and then we but we've gotten uh, over the years we've gotten to where we like our dogs to be a few years apart rather than the same age Um, just to avoid losing two at once, if possible, mm-hmm. as if you could control that. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, that's also true. That
0: loss of control—that's a really big—that's a big one um, that you th- realize. That I mean, I, I think all of us every day, in all kinds of little ways, recognize our loss of control. It's just—it doesn't always add up. To a big le- a big learning lesson that affects us the next day, but you know things <laughs> yeah. never go you know you didn't want it to rain that day and then it rained, and you didn't want someone to be driving so slowly in front of you when you 're late for work, and you didn't want that person to catch that error in the document you wrote, and you didn't what you didn't want your your spouse or your child to say the kind of thing they said that really Gave you a bad start to the day, or whatever. Just so many things. It just happens constantly. Like the world just never goes. I was thinking after your talking last week that it's a little bit like a, a useful way to live is to think like like a GPS that you are always recalibrating. Mm-hmm. You know, you're bumping into actually a direction that was not part of your plan right. for that minute, that hour, that day, that year. And then right. you have to recalibrate. And that's a skillful way to live if you can recalibrate. Some of us stop recalibrating because we don't want to approach it again. We stay away from what we're afraid of. But I think, I think
1: you're so right just, about that. Yeah. And I, I've always been such a planner. I mean, that is totally my personality. Yeah, well,
0: that's big on control.
1: Yeah, it's huge on control, and I think that's kind of what I was alluding to, where I've become sort of less of a planner. And, of course, being a planner is not a bad thing. Um, right. in, in a lot of ways, that's how I've gotten to where I've gotten in, in my life um, is being a planner um, and thinking two steps ahead. But I think based off of what you're sort of describing, when you realize that just anything can come and just throw the whole plan off course, you start to not plan 10 steps ahead anymore, but maybe just one or two steps ahead. And so I think that has been um, a change for me in terms of just kind of being more humble in the face of nature or the universe, just right. throwing things at me and, and, and planning to some degree, but not in the same way, because I think I just realized that I'm not as powerful as I thought I was.
0: About that you wrote a letter to instruct your friends, the mothers of other children that you had known, um, instruct them. How you know how to regard you and how to proceed to help them have a set of guidelines and you're and you sent me a copy of that letter, and I just think it's a wonderful letter that people would appreciate um so I don't know i want sure, ho- yeah. i want us to get to that also and also to the way you've made meaning of this in the world and kind of made it that Jackson continues to live on in a certain way,
1: yeah, well, let's hit all of it I'll start with okay, the,
0: go ahead with wherever the letter you want with it. the
1: with the mama friends. So I, I mentioned this in my uh, talking about this last week um, that the it was kind of like an open letter um, and it's called A Note to My Mama Friends. And it was in response to um, my friends who are moms, particularly a couple of friends who I noticed were sort of walking on eggshells around me a little bit, um, understandably, out of fear of um, stinging us or you know, accidentally complaining about their living children um, and the difficulties of parenthood, which are so normal. Um, and so I was really picking up on this fear of theirs of either, you know, posting photos of them happy with their kids or texting right. me some frustrated comment, and, and both of which were um, they were nervous to do. Um, so that's, that's right. what kind of inspired this letter. So I can read it. I've got it here. So it's, like Good. I said, a note to my mama friends, and it says... It's okay to find parenthood challenging, it's okay to post your public displays of affection with your children on Instagram, and it's okay to have confusing mixed feelings about the simultaneous joy and difficulty entailed in raising a child, especially when I've lost mine. I sense your unease when you tell me about your long days and the sleepless nights. Every complaint is milder now and often followed by a statement of gratitude for what you have. I so appreciate your caution with my feelings. I know my pain has touched you, and I'm glad to see—I'm glad you see how lucky you are. At the same time, I want you to know that your frustrations are valid because it's true that parenting is hard. It's also true that you are grateful for your children and wish I didn't have to lose my child. Both are true without negating the other. This is uncharted territory, at least for me, but I invite you to keep inviting me into your life, and together we will figure out what works. Know that I love you and your children and coming over to your house for dinner will likely be both hard and enjoyable. Know that watching them play with toys and laugh and grow will make me both smile and long for Jackson. Know that the joy in remaining connected to your family is worth whatever difficulty we may experience in being around you. My ability to cope with this tragedy involves and requires feeling close to you, my mama friend." And ever since you became a mama, it became impossible to share yourself without your child. Hmm. I love you and am grateful for your willingness to navigate this painful obstacle, one we certainly never expected to impede our friendship along with me. Know that sometimes you may accidentally cause my heart to sting. Know that sometimes my ability to be your best support may fall short of what you need. Please know you have my permission to share and post and call and I'm giving myself permission to occasionally unfollow, not hit like, or let your call go to voicemail, if that's what I need in that moment. Tell me about your children, and also know that I may choose to skip their birthday party. I'll know that you understand. Please know, above all else, that I'm willing to try and risk taking some missteps here or there, if you will. But
0: when Christmas came, which of course is about three months after his death, um, you usually have a Christmas list of about 50 people or something like that, and you, yeah. and you decided you're going to send out Christmas cards, and you found an appropriate one, and then you sent it out, and you tripled the size of your list, as sort of to say, not only are we going to continue to participate in the world with holidays, and acknowledge these things, but um, we're going to more participate more. <laughs> And then it, you yeah. said it, it was that that began turning into a, this thing that became a project. And I wonder if you could tell us about it.
1: Yeah, I would love to talk about the kindness project. And um, and so, yes, that is the exact setup for it was um, around the time that we realized, okay, we, we want to send out a Christmas card. We want to really explicitly and behaviorally communicate to people that we want Jackson front and center, that we want to talk about him, that we don't want to avoid... Um, thinking about something painful over the holidays. In fact, let's channel this into something. Um, And that's what sort of gave birth to the Kindness Project. And so basically along with the Christmas card that I described last week um, was sort of a letter describing this whole idea and then a couple of kindness cards. And so the kindness cards, um, you know, Brian, he's he's a designer of of things. And so he was actually able to design these really beautiful cards. And so um, on the front, it has a photo of Jackson, and it says, this act of kindness is in loving memory of Jackson Antonio Clark. And on the very back, um, it has this beautiful pink floral pattern because Jackson loved pink flowers. And it says, a life that touches others goes on forever. So that was kind of um, where it all kind of started from. And I will say I got this idea from a book that I read about, you know, this is not our you know unique idea a lot of people do things like this but it is a type of a kindness project <laughs> and and for us like i said i think it was a lot about this making meaning and finding purpose after trauma and loss it was about finding ways to honor jackson and sort of be really active in the spreading of his impact in the world and essentially just not letting this tragedy and our suffering to be his legacy, or like the end-all be-all of the story, um, finding ways to kind of let him to continue living. And it sort of came from a place of realizing that, you know, I wasn't going to get new photos with Jackson, new experiences, new memories. I wasn't going to get to watch him ride a bike or graduate or get married. But Jackson's impact on the world and my relationship with him could continue. And basically, his impact on living, changing things by default means that he and my relationship with him continues to live and change. So that was that was kind of where it came from. And of course, there's the piece of, you know, doing good in the world, which, which feels good too. Um, but it came from this place of really wanting to to help him continue. So. Hmm. Um, so like I said, we had these little cards, and we just invited people to participate in spreading kindness in his honor. And then we just asked people, basically, um, to take a photo of their kindness act in some way. Um, some of them were hard to take pictures of, so they could just describe it, too. But mm-hmm. um, we gave, we mailed out to, you know, all 150 letters that we mailed out had two kindness cards. And then we got a lot of people saying, send me more. <laughs> oh, wow. um, but we now have a website where we posted these, and there's about 200 now. Um, of kindness acts in Jackson's memory, and it's an ongoing project. I actually just got a text from my friend Eliza just a couple of days ago. She was on her way to work on call. Uh, She's a doctor late at night. She stopped at a Starbucks, and she... Told me, she texted me that she took a picture of the woman at the register holding a Jackson card, and then she texted me, Someone's about to meet Jackson. So she bought a drink for somebody behind her or something like that. Um, So that's just an example, but it's ongoing, and people keep doing these wonderful, beautiful things. And, you know, some of them are are kind of the big ones like Jackson has fed and clothed the homeless. Um, He sponsored a child in Sri Lanka, funded the education of a refugee child. He's put a lot of hair on the heads of multiple cancer survivors. He's mm. contributed to critical research um, on sudden unexplained death in childhood, SUDC. We've raised just honestly thousands of dollars for them, um, for us. And, um, and then there's also kind of the smaller or more indirect ways that are equally beautiful. He's fed the birds outside our window. He's, like I said, bought coffee for strangers. He's brought people together who otherwise wouldn't know each other and I think for all of us, he's changed the way we look at life and respond to tragedy and loss. And it's just been this incredibly heartwarming project. Um, and I think that what I've heard from people who have participated, it's given them a really tangible way to provide social support because there's only so many flowers and casseroles you can drop off, but this feels to them like a really um, an opportunity or an empowering chance Um, to really make a difference, not only for us, but for other people. Um, And so it's been incredibly powerful, and and it's something we plan to keep going.
0: Yeah. God, so many things. And I'm just imagining that of the the things that, let's say, somebody turns around and buys somebody their meal or a cup of coffee um, and all the other things like that, that then – you know, that's going to be translated into some that person doing something for somebody. And yes. sort of how many, many, many things there are like that. It's really
1: yeah, wonderful. I mean, I have, I have spent so much time thinking about that. Um, it really blows my mind. And I actually know of a couple instances of where, you know, we've done a kindness act or somebody has done a kindness act for somebody, and then they've gone on to sort of spread it on. But I am also aware that there's countless other examples I'm just not aware of it's kind of it's kind of gone viral I guess in a way where um, it sort of has there's this quality where there's a lot of comfort in like being very active in our spreading of Jackson's memory and the kindness and then there's something also beyond that which is that it has a life of its own like I, I take comfort in I don't even need to be actively telling the world be kind, do things in honor of Jackson, whatever, it, it's just happening, and it's just kind of unfolding in it on its own, and that's so so powerful. Um, but I do want to share an example, which was my favorite kindness act that I did and how it came uh, sure. full circle. It was just it was my favorite story about this. Um, but one of the kindness acts that I did was um, – well, the backstory of it, I'll make it short, is that I – um, we live near this place called Paint the Town and it's basically a ceramic painting studio. You've probably heard of some version of this in your own town yeah. but, um, yeah, you, know, but you go with the kids like and you paint. Yeah. yeah. So I have always been really excited to do that with Jackson um, and I would always talk about that. Even when I was pregnant I told Brian when we walked by U Village and walked by Paint the Town I said, oh, I can't wait to take our future baby here someday. And so actually um, the Christmas before Jackson died so he would have been just a little over one um, Brian bought me a gift card to say this is for you and Jackson when he gets big enough. And I, we both knew it was very premature. He wasn't old enough to go, but I've been hanging on to this gift card of this like event, this, this thing we wanted to do together. <laughs> and of course Jackson died before he was ever really old enough to do that. So we never mm-hmm. got to do it. Um, and so one of the kindness acts that I got very motivated to do around the holidays was actually to go to paint the town, which was an exposure in and of itself, but to go to paint the town um, and actually buy a, a gift certificate and give it to a family who was there um, mm. painting together mm. and so as I was doing this I noticed if I caught a family out of the corner of my eye and I said oh it was a mom and um, her daughter and her son and I said I'm going to treat them um, so anyways I was getting a gift card at the at the register and then as I sort of look back they're not there anymore and turns out they had actually in that half a minute or so, come to check out. They were all done, and they oh. were going to go pay for their things. And they were standing right next to me. And I said, oh my gosh, um, okay. So I was like trying to finish my transaction quickly so I could give it to them before they paid. And it was really beautiful too, because they had a J ornament that they had painted. And I was like, oh, this is so perfect. Um, so anyways, um, I, I finished the transaction. I handed her the gift certificate, and I could barely get the words out. But I just tried to say like, this is in honor of my son." like happy holidays or something like that um and yeah. so i handed it to her and she just kind of teared up and and said thank you and that and that was it that was it i i walked out and i was like wow that felt so powerful and good and yeah. special
0: yeah
1: sorry got a little emotional <laughs> yeah um so anyways then it was really interesting because about a month later um, we were we get these letters from the SCDC Foundation because we do a lot of fundraising with them about um, oh you know heads up so and so donated in your honor or in Jackson's name and so you know families we know I see a whole list of families we know and then I want to thank for that and then at the very bottom it says the the Pottery um, Re- a Kindness Act recipient. And it has her name and her address. And this woman took our card, Googled it, found the Kindness Project, found our website, and learned what happened to Jackson. And she donated money to the SEDC Foundation.
0: Oh. Wow.
1: Yeah. It was just so special. Um, so anyways, amazing. that was an example of something that kind of came full circle, just one of the few examples that I got to witness. But it was very special.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's, yeah. Yeah. I'm just... Uh, um, I think that any one event like that does has the potential, and many of them will one way or another. You just can't track all of them. That one happened to come back right to you, and you knew it. Right. God knows how many have just been right next to you. Yeah. Or have come around a circle in your community, or or somehow else. I I don't I I, I think that it's such a special example that you gave um you know because you're giving with complete you're you're giving it's kind of i don't know it's it's this concept that jackson never ended
1: yeah
0: and he's still there and and it's it, it's you it's jackson is part of you of course and jackson was part of you before he was even physically manifest i mean he mm-hmm. came from you and brian and mm-hmm. um And he was there, and his beginning was just happened to be that he became a physical being on the planet. But, you know, a lot got associated with who he was from the first day, and you guys took him in. And what's wonderful is your generosity to share him with the world rather than just closing up, which would be completely understandable. Um, And then it also really does um, indicate that... You know he still has a life and I don't say that in a simplistic or rosy way I mm-hmm. just think he goes on and on and he's going to go on and on and he can't not now he's just you've unleashed something that's really might not be attributed to him even but his contribution to the world and his and of all things to choose that it would be kindness yeah is such a great thing You know, it's generosity yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not and
0: I'm anything in return.
1: Right. And I think this concept of, you know, interbeing or interconnectedness has been so helpful. Um and thinking about this, I actually um highly recommend for anyone listening to listen to your earlier episode on interbeing because I just found it so mm. helpful. Um and I've since bought uh, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books. Uh, I think it's no death, no fear,
0: yeah. um,
1: that has just been really uh, – it's changed the way I think about this. Um, and it's gotten me pretty pretty much uh, finally close to this idea of, like, Jackson is with us. Uh, I think people often say that more in a religious context. And yeah. while I don't personally believe he has this spirit that's watching over us or anything like that, I do really feel that if I can relax my boundaries of what it means for him to be here, I actually yeah. can feel him everywhere. Yeah, um, And – and I'm not separate from him. Um, no. And he is me and I am him. And sometimes Brian and I even will just, you know, be talking in the kitchen or something and, and I'll, I'll say something and he'll look at me and say, you just made a Jackson face. And I'm like, I know, I felt it as I was doing it. <laughs> like there is this sense of like he's That's just so totally cool. in us and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. and spreading his impact is, is a huge way of feeling that presence.
0: Mm.